0: Hi guys. So happy to be here with you guys tonight. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible to teach. No, um, it was fun to get to revisit this uh, again. A really exactly a year after I taught it the first time. Um, And I feel like God showed me new stuff this year. Um, So we're always learning, always letting God's word work on us. So if you have your Bibles, we will be in Mark 13. Um, So my kids, like most of your kids probably, had spring break this week and we took a road trip to New Mexico and it took us, our trip took us through parts of Texas that my kids had never been through before and they were parts of Texas that I actually grew up in. My family doesn't live there anymore so we don't ever go back to that part of the state Um, and there are so many things about kind of far west Texas that are totally foreign to my kids because they're growing up. In the city um, that were very normal to me as a child. Um, We drove home on Thursday through the worst dust storm I've ever seen, and they were like, What is happening? Like, um, is it fog? No, it's dirt. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, do y'all know what pump jacks are? Like, my kids had never seen a pump jack before. They're these like little oil. Rig things that go up and down. I don't know, maybe they're called something different. That's what I grew up calling them. And those big, like, um, irrigation systems that farmers use to water, like, huge fields. They had never seen those before. Um, So, It was fun to get to kind of explain to them, like, that's what these things are. I grew up seeing these things every day because I grew up in small-town West Texas. But there are other things from my childhood that I'm really glad that my kids are totally oblivious to. I was raised by two fantastic parents who loved Jesus, and we were very involved in a local church community that was really genuine. And it wasn't until my young adult years that I realized that not every follower of Jesus had such very specific views about the second coming of Jesus um, and all the things kind of surrounding that. As a child, I was terrified of the rapture and being left behind I don't think my kids even know what the rapture is. It's not language that we use. They've probably never heard of that until right now. (laughs) Now they know, and they're going to ask me, Mom, what's the rapture? I remember watching TV evangelists who had entire shows dedicated to cracking like prophecy code and speculating about which current world leader was the Antichrist or which current event was the fulfillment of this particular prophecy that meant Jesus' return was imminent. As I've gained some distance from those kinds of teachings and spent some time studying the Word of God over the last couple of decades, I now realize that that is only one way of interpreting what God's word says about Jesus' second coming and all the events surrounding it. There are lots of different schools of thought on this topic, and I don't think there's a better example of that than all of the scholarship and study that has happened around Mark 13. It's one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible when it comes to how it's interpreted. It is viewed by many as a central teaching on the second coming of Jesus, and others believe that Jesus is teaching something completely different here. And there are faithful believers, people who honor God's word, and people way smarter than I am who interpret this chapter in a variety of different ways. So the truth is, this chapter is just confusing. Like Nicole said, it's a head-scratcher. And studying a chapter like this to teach it gives me a lot of empathy, actually, for those teachers from my past who I believe actually taught, some, taught me some wrong things. Because to come to a chapter like this is really humbling. And to teach it with any sort of certainty requires the person teaching it to make quite a few leaps and assumptions. And the other option is to teach it with uncertainty, and that's not as much fun, but that's what I'm going to be doing today, teaching with uncertainty. I'm just going to admit up front that I don't understand everything that Jesus is saying here, and I think that's okay. I don't think that we have to have like full intellectual understanding of what God's Word says in order to let it work on us, in order to let it shape us and make us more like Jesus. So we're going to press into this confusing chapter and ask God to teach us through it. For all the uncertainty here, I want us to see that Jesus is shepherding his disciples here and shepherding us through these words. He is telling us how he expects us to live in a world that is constantly on the verge of crisis, constantly in chaos and how he wants us to live in light of his second coming, and that's something we all need to hear. So I'm going to divide the chapter into two sections. The first one, judgment for Jerusalem in verses 1 through 31, and judgment for the world in 32 through 37. And I know those don't sound like very fun division titles, um, but I pray that we will see that for those who are in Christ, knowing that Jesus is going to judge the world one day is actually something that we can look forward to and anticipate. So just as a reminder, where we are in Mark's gospel, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life on earth. He and his disciples have been in the temple where Jesus has been teaching, and he has confronted the religious leaders for their unwillingness to recognize him for who he is. And that is where we pick up in Mark 13. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the temple of Jesus' day was really an incredible structure. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And these buildings, boys these disciples from small town Galilee were just in awe of the temple and it was super impressive this was not the original temple that we read about read about in the old testament that temple built by king solomon had been destroyed in 586 bc when babylon conquered jerusalem and took god's people into exile And so about a decade before Jesus was born, King Herod, who was the king of Judea at the time, started work to rebuild an incredible temple. And this work took 46 years to complete. So it would have still been under construction at the time that Jesus and his disciples were there. And this temple was really over the top. The whole temple complex, we think, was like 35 football fields, which for first century, it was massive. Some of the stones, white limestone that the temple was uh, made of, the stones individually weighed hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it was overlaid with gold. So when the sun hit it, you couldn't even look at it directly because it was blinding. So this was the temple of Jesus' day. And aside from the beauty of the actual building, We know that the temple was such an important part of life for Jewish people. It was where they worshiped and sacrificed, and it represented God's presence among his people. So for the disciples to hear Jesus say that the temple was going to be destroyed, that would have been really upsetting to Jesus' disciples. And of course, they have questions. Specifically, they want to know when. When is this going to happen? And we see Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus and ask him about this in verses three and four. When will these things happen? And what will the signs be that this is about to happen? And so then Jesus begins to teach. If you have a red letter Bible, the whole rest of the chapter is just red letters. Jesus is downloading so much information to his followers at this point. And everything he is saying is future-oriented. It's prophecy. He's speaking about things that are going to happen in the future. Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed, and there will be signs to let his followers know that this is about to happen. And he he answers their question of when, not super specifically, but in verse 30, he says that this is going to happen within a generation. And a biblical generation is about 40 years. So sometime within their lifetime, likely Jesus is saying this is going to happen. And the signs that Jesus lists that this is about to happen are in verses 5 through 13. Jesus lists several things, false messiahs, False teachers who are going to claim to come in Jesus' name, but are really just deceivers. Wars and rumors of wars and political unrest, natural disasters like famines and earthquakes, persecution. Jesus says they're going to be arrested and stand trial because they're preaching about him. He says that they'll experience betrayal and hatred because of the faith So Jesus says that these are the things that are going to happen as signs that the destruction of the temple is coming. And we have documentation from history um, and additionally from the book of Acts in the Bible that all of these things happened in the decades immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection. There were false prophets. There were wars in the Roman Empire, as well as increasing rumors in Judea that Rome was preparing to come and attack them. There were severe famines, and there was an earthquake in the city of Pompeii in 62 AD. You are probably familiar with Pompeii because of the volcano that destroyed it. This earthquake happened about a decade before that, and many people think that this was the cause of that volcanic eruption. The book of Acts tells us in great detail of the persecution and difficulty that Jesus' followers faced as a result of their preaching the gospel. But still, just as Jesus said, the gospel spread through the entire Roman world, even though persecution was intense, and there were cases of Christians who did not endure to the end, who betrayed their family, both their believing family and their actual family, in order to save their own lives. So these things sound terrifying, and I'm sure that Jesus' disciples were upset by what they were hearing. And even though I believe that Jesus was speaking specifically about events that would happen in the first century— Every generation of Jesus' followers from that day until now can see themselves and their world in Jesus' words in these verses. Don't we know of false prophets who claim to speak for God, but their lives and their teaching bear rotten fruit? We hear about wars and political instability all over the world on a daily basis, natural disasters, persecution of Christians, which we mostly escape, but our brothers and sisters around the world do not. This is life in a broken and chaotic world, and Jesus tells his disciples, both those hearing him on the Mount of Olives that day and us sitting here today, what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live in a world like this. I love the tenderness of Jesus here. He is shepherding his followers ahead of time, preparing them for what is going to be a very difficult time for them. In verse 13, Jesus tells them what he wants them to do. He says that they are to stand firm to the end, to endure In a world that is constantly in chaos, in the face of hatred and persecution and deception and disaster, they are to continue in the way of Jesus. To recognize that there will be all kinds of social pressure and personal fears that will try to distract them. In the previous chapter, he had given them—you probably talked about it last week—mission number one, the greatest commandment, love God and love your neighbor. This is what it means to stand firm. We continue in the way of Jesus. And in verse 10, Jesus also says that the gospel must be preached, and that is their mission, that's their job, to preach the good news to all nations The mission for them is the mission for us. Continue in the way of Jesus, love God, love neighbor, and tell the good news of Jesus. So let's look in verse 14. This is where some of the uh, confusion sometimes sets in. Verse 14 says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus switches gears here. He's not talking about signs anymore leading up to the temple's destruction. He's talking about the actual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And you might say, wait, this, my Bible doesn't say anything about a temple. Um, Jesus' disciples would have known what he was talking about. The abomination of desolation are words that would have pointed them to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel prophesies a horrible event of some sort that's going to happen in the temple. Daniel says that the daily sacrifices in the temple will be halted, and the abomination of desolation will be set up in the temple. This was a well-known prophecy in Jesus' day, and most people thought that it had already been fulfilled by an evil king named Antiochus Epiphanes, who marched into the city of Jerusalem to squash the Maccabean Rebellion, if you all are familiar with that, in 156 BC. He set up an altar to Zeus, in the temple, and he sacrificed pigs inside the temple. So it was, abomin- it was an abomination because it was idolatry, and it caused desolation because it defiled the temple. So Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples that these past events are foreshadowing another horrible event that is going to happen in the future. Something similar to the prior abomination of desolation. And Jesus says they will recognize it when they see it coming, and when they see it, they are to run. There's a time to stand firm, there's a time to stay and stand trial, and there is a time to get out. And Jesus tells them they are not to hesitate, they are not to pack a bag, they are to run to the mountains so we believe that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., just about 40 years from the time that Jesus was talking here. The Roman armies marched into Jerusalem to squash another Jewish rebellion. And historical accounts of this time are horrifying. They fall in line with what Jesus says about their being— there not being anything as terrible before or since. About a million Jewish people were killed during that time. And the Jewish historian Eusebius notes that the church in Jerusalem was spared because when they saw the Roman armies advancing, they fled. They paid attention to Jesus' warning. And as part of this attack of Jerusalem, Roman soldiers marched into the temple. They took all the treasury, and they offered sacrifices there to their God. And then they set fire to the temple, and the gold that covered the stones on the outside melted and seeped into the cracks. So to, in order to get all the gold out, they took every stone off of one another to get all the gold. So Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus describes the time after the fall of Jerusalem using poetic language. In verse 24, he says, But in those days the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory." This is poetic language. It's symbolic language, very common in the Old Testament, used to describe the judgment of God coming against sinners. For example, you can look in Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This is language that scripture uses consistently to describe the judgment of God. It is earth-shattering like the stars are falling, like the sun cannot shine. And what we see here, while it is not the world ending, it is a world ending. Judaism, as it had been up to that point, was over. They couldn't obey the law anymore. They couldn't worship in the temple anymore. It was an end of their way of life. So does this make you uncomfortable? It makes me a little uncomfortable to talk about God using Rome to bring judgment on Jerusalem, on the nation of Israel. But I do think that is what's happening here. God has used other nations to bring judgment on his people before. Remember when that first temple was destroyed? After years of sending prophets to mercifully warn and call his people back to him and them not listening, God sent judgment. Here, God became flesh in the person of Jesus to announce the kingdom of God, and they rejected him. Mark doesn't record these words of Jesus but in Luke 19:41 it says that Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and he says to the religious leaders the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jerusalem will be judged and Jesus will be vindicated. All the lies that were told about him, that he's a false prophet, that he's a blasphemer, all of the suspicions and accusations that he dealt with during his ministry will be erased and his claims to be the Son of God will be proven true when all of these things happen. So I know that I lumped verses 26 and 27 in with these verses about judgment. This is where it says people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. And a lot of people will disagree with that decision, including the people who made my Bible, because I'm just ignoring all of the headings that they put in here. Um, But I think that verse 26... um, they think that verse 26 is Jesus talking about his second coming. And I believe that Jesus will come again. Scripture teaches it. I just don't know that verse 26 is about that. Because in order for this to be literal, that at the time that the temple was destroyed, people will see Jesus coming back, we have to ignore that Jesus says that all of these things are going to happen within a generation. Remember verse 30. So instead, I think that this is included in this poetic, symbolic, apocalyptic language that's very common to scripture to talk about his coming in judgment against Jerusalem. God is going to judge Israel for their rejection of Jesus, and Jesus is preparing his disciples. He tells them that just like you can know that summer is coming, when you see the leaves start to appear on a fig tree, that they will see these things coming. They'll see the signs and know that judgment is near. So I want to get into our second division with the time that we have left and look at the remaining verses of chapter 13 verses 32 through 37. Verse 32 begins, but concerning that day or that hour. And I know English translations are different. That's what mine says. And in the Greek, that is there, but concerning. And that's a very common prepositional phrase that's used to change the subject. It's like starting a new chapter. So I think that Jesus shifts topics here in verse 32, and he is talking about that day. That day in scripture is shorthand for the day of the Lord the day that God will ultimately and finally judge evil and free the world from the grip of sin and death and establish his kingdom, a completely restored creation where his people live with him forever. This is judgment day, but not just for Jerusalem, for the whole world. Jesus says that only the Father knows when this is going to happen. When Jesus willingly became human, he submitted to having limitations placed on his knowledge. He says he doesn't know when the day of the Lord will be. And Jesus' charge to his disciples here isn't to make some charts or try to connect the dots or nail down a specific timeline. Let's read Jesus' invitation to us, starting in verse 33. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus' invitation to his disciples, then and now, is to wait for him well. We trust that Jesus will return. We watch, we wait, we anticipate. And while we are waiting, it says that we have work to do. It says each servant was left in charge of his own work. So we love God. We love people. We share the good news. We ask God, what is the work that you have for me specifically? We stay ready, stay faithful, and hope in his return. But if Jesus' return is a day of judgment, how do we hope in that? How is that something for us to anticipate? Whether we realize it or not, we are all longing for judgment. We crave it. We see injustice in the world, and it makes us grieve. We work for justice with activism. We feel helpless to affect any sort of real change, and we long for someone to swoop in and fix it. If there is not a God who defines good and evil and holds people accountable, there is no hope for our world. There is no hope for wrongs to be made right without judgment. So if we hope for God's new creation, for all things made new and all wrongs made right, we hope for judgment. One pastor that I listen to poses this question. If there is no, ho- there is no judgment, what hope is there for the world? But if there is judgment... What hope is there for me? Because we all have sin and brokenness and death within us as a result of the fall, as a result of the curse, going all the way back to Genesis 3. So if God is going to come and judge evil and destroy sin and death, that might be good news for the world, but it is not very good news for me. So how can I possibly watch eagerly for final judgment? Because for me, and for everyone who is in Christ, judgment day already came. That judgment imagery that we looked at of the sun going dark and everything shaking, we see that happen another time in Mark's gospel, just a few chapters from where we are right now. When Jesus was on the cross, the sky went dark for hours in the middle of the day. There was an earthquake that tore the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. Judgment Day came, and it came on Jesus. Jesus experienced the full wrath of God against sin, as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be made right with God. My judgment, Jesus took it. And that is how I can hope for Judgment Day, because Jesus already absorbed all the judgment for my brokenness. I can look forward to that day, the day of the Lord, and the complete restoration of all things. So how does Jesus want us to live in this broken world and in light of his second coming Like we've said, he asks us to stand firm, to continue in the way of Jesus, to not let social pressure or fear or apathy distract us from loving him and loving our neighbors and spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. Our hope, the hope of the gospel, isn't that Jesus is going to come back and take us somewhere else. It's that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to totally remake where we live right now. So our posture towards our neighbors and our city and our culture should be one of engagement, not escapism. We are people who can be prone to fear, but Jesus wants us to trust that he holds it all. Past, present, future, known, unknown, Things have always been bad, and they will continue to be bad, and one day Jesus will return and bring his kingdom. Those who are in Christ can hope for that day because Jesus took our judgment. So with all this in mind, we're going to take communion together. Communion is one way that we proclaim what Jesus has done for us while we wait for his coming again. The bread and the wine Jesus' body and blood broken, poured out as he faced judgment, so that we don't have to. So, I want you to bring it to the table your gratitude, your questions, your uncertainties, and fears about the future, and let God meet you there. So, you're going to take the bread, dip it in the wine. And ask God to use this sacred meal to nourish your soul, giving you strength to continue to stand firm, to continue in the way of Jesus while you hope and wait for the day that he returns. Let's pray. God, I thank you for for your word and how it is a gift to us to prepare us for life today, and for what is to come. We want to submit our lives to all of its teaching, even teaching that feels confusing we may not understand. Thank you that you are coming again to restore all things. I pray that you would show everyone in this room how they are to wait well, how they are to be faithful, and what work it is that you have given them to do right now to participate with you in your restoration of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.